Well, good morning, LifePoint. How are you guys doing this morning? Good, good, good. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time this morning, uh, first, we, we're so excited that you're here to worship with us. Uh, so good to gather together and, and praise the name of Jesus. Amen. And uh, yeah, if it is your first time, uh, please come find me after the service. I'd love to meet you, get to know you a little bit. Just, uh, yeah, chat. But, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we started this, this series in the book of Galatians. And our desire here is that we would be studying this, this book together as a church family, not just inside of these walls, but also outside of them as well. So um, please, if you're not studying the book of Galatians in your personal time, start doing that. Uh, it, it just helps to have a framework of, of really what's going on here. And um, it'll make, you know, Sunday sermons a lot more impactful and bind us, you know, unity in, in, in Christ. And so uh, if you've been with us or if you've read Galatians before, you might have noticed this, this prevailing theme of uh, throughout the book of the, of the importance of the gospel, right, in, in the significance that it should play in our lives, as well as the, the danger of misunderstanding or even believing a false gospel. And this morning, we're going to actually see this theme continued in uh, chapter two here. But here's, here's our bottom line this morning. Here's the main idea or the main takeaway for this morning in, in this passage of scripture. It is this, that your life should look radically different as a result of the truth of the gospel. So let me ask you guys this. Has there ever been a time when uh, someone said something to you that kind of changed your perspective on your actions? Have you ever experienced any time like this where someone has pointed out something and it kind of just, oh, I didn't see that before. Or I didn't see it that way before. Yeah, most of us, right? We can relate to that. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about a time in my life when this happened to me. I don't know if, uh, if you don't know, I, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. And one of the many unfortunate things about uh, Tucson is uh, growing up in Tucson is there's not much to do, right? There's nothing to do, uh, especially as a kid. There's nothing to do. It's too hot to go outside half the time. Um, it's the middle of the Sonoran Desert. It's not the most friendly of environments, right? And so you have to be kind of creative and, and make your own fun as a kid. And so uh, I had this best friend by the name of Scott growing up. And uh, needless to say, we made a lot of bad decisions and uh, got ourselves into some pretty interesting circumstances. And so when Scott and I were, uh, I think we were, we j I just turned nine years old. So when Scott and I were nine years old, uh, we went with my family to one of my older brother's baseball games. He was in high school at the time. And this baseball game was at this brand new high school that they had just built. And, uh, excuse me, and uh, in Arizona, if you've never been there, or Southern Arizona, um, right at the end of July, beginning of August, there are these violent monsoons that come through. It's this just downpour of rain, and it lasts two, maybe three weeks, and then it's gone. And that's pretty much the rain for the year, so it's a lot of rain all at once. And because of this, the entire city of Tucson is built around the system of washes, um, in that they kind of basically guide the, all the rain shed away from roads, away from buildings to try to prevent uh, flooding, things like that. And so this new high school, whoever designed it, designed it around this, this same infrastructure of washes. Um, 
And uh, over top of these washes were these nice, beautiful metallic bridges with these you know, big hand railings, all that. And where most people would look at those bridges and see you know, a, a means to get from point A to point B, Scott and I saw an opportunity. So the beginning of my brother's baseball game, we were you know, kicking around in this wash and uh, we find uh, uh, like a part of a rope that's tattered and just kind of been carelessly thrown in there. We found an empty Gatorade bottle and a branch that had shed off of a tree nearby. So Scott, being the genius that he is, goes, you know what? I can tie one end of this rope onto the branch and the other end onto this empty Gatorade bottle and it'll look like a fishing pole. So we're like, yeah, that's awesome. So what I decided to do is I went and hid under the bridge. Here's why. Where most people would walk by and see Scott just pretending to fish and think nothing of it. Oh, it's just a kid, you know, playing around. He's goofy, whatever. Uh, really, that fishing pole was a signal for me and my role being under the bridge. And so what Scott would do is when someone would get close enough, he would bob the Gatorade bottle up and down, and I would yell from under the bridge in my very best troll impersonation, get off my bridge. <laughs> this is a true story. My parents are here, they can attest. Uh, it re this really happened. This is really, all the stories I tell, this is the, you get a little glimpse into my childhood and um, <laughs> my poor parents, jeez. And so I would yell, right, get off my bridge and, um, Anytime someone would come, uh, come by, Scott would bob the Gatorade bottle up and down. I would yell, get off my bridge, pretend to be a troll. Sometimes we'd get laughs. I'm sure there were plenty of puzzled looks that we got as well. But uh, we, believe it or not, went on doing this for well over an hour. It was the majority of my brother's baseball game we did this. And then there was a, a groundskeeper who, who had driven by on his golf cart. And he stopped. <laughs> he saw... Scott pretending to fish, and he's, he said, you know, you really ought to be careful in these washes because there are rattlesnakes down there and Gila monsters. <laughs> now, if you don't know, Southern Arizona actually has the highest concentration of rattlesnakes in the world. There are 13 varieties of species of just rattlesnake alone. Gila monsters are a venomous lizard where if they bite you, your, your heart slows down so much that it actually stops, and so you die. Luckily, they're incredibly slow, but if you don't see them before they bite you, you're gone, right? And so this, this guy coming by on his golf cart, he actually, pointing this out, changed our perspective a little bit, and that really got us to thinking, okay, maybe we should find something else to do. <laughs> and what's funny is, is looking back on it now, I see that... Uh, me being under the bridge in the shade, I was like in the prime location for a rattlesnake den, right? Because they, they want to get out of the heat. And uh, though Scott and I did, did plenty of, you know, ridiculous things after this day, we, this man pointing it out, he actually changed our perspective a little bit and we were a little more cautious when we were entering places that we knew there were, you know, there was potential of, of, of running into dangerous animals. And uh, at the time, I'm, I'm sure it was, you know, funny to some people walking across the bridge and hearing some, you know, little kid pretending to be a troll under there. But, um, you know, it's probably, 
probably easy for them to shrug it off and, you know, like, you know, our deviation from like the, what the social norm is, right, to just play like normal kids. And they probably just thought, yeah, whatever, they're kids, they don't know any better. You know, they're just weird, whatever, they're being goofy, all that, and having fun. But can you imagine if I, today, as an adult, as a father of a child, were, went back to doing the same thing? <laughs> like if I crawled under some bridge and yelled, get off my bridge, as a troll? It'd probably be pretty weird, right? Like if, uh, th- I think there are times in our ways, as ridiculous of an example as that is, there are so many times in our life that we go back to our old ways, right? Despite knowing better, despite having learned better, right? And this morning, we're actually going to look at uh, one of the apostles who's, who's struggling with this very same thing. Okay, so if you would, uh, if you've got your Bibles with, with you, please turn to Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. And if you don't have your Bibles, we will we'll have all the scripture on the, on the screen. But before we dig in, I think it's important to understand a little bit of what's going on here, have a little bit of a context as to what's going on here. This is the, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, right? It was written in the early days of the church. It's, uh, it's only been about 10 or 15 years since uh, the ascension, uh, resurrection and ascension of Christ into heaven. And for the first time, the world is seeing uh, people of different races, ethnicities, religious backgrounds coming together under the unity of the gospel because of its transforming power. And so the world was beginning to look different and the church was kind of blurring the lines, removing division and bringing unity where there had never existed unity before in these, in these different groups. And so uh, this, was, this was countercultural at the time. It was very different from what most of the world looked like. And so the church was growing more and more. People were coming to know the truth of the gospel and it was impacting a pretty significant portion of the world. And while much of the early church was flipping the world's perspective upside down, much the same way that Jesus had done, there were tons of problems as well in the early church, as I'm sure you can imagine. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember John talking a little bit about this group called the Judaizers. This was a group of Christians who taught that Jesus wasn't enough, right? That you also needed to uh, keep the Jewish law, which would pertain to things like circumcision, uh, eating kosher, um, things of that nature. It was very strict to the Levitical law. So these were kind of the, the Jesus plus works people. It was, uh, you, your righteousness is not found in Christ alone. It's found in your proclamation of Jesus as Lord and keeping to Jewish law. And so these Judaizers had been spreading this uh, sort of additive gospel to the rest of the church, and this actually included one of the largest groups of believers, which was in the city called Antioch. And this is where we're going to pick up here, starting in verse 11. We're in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, But when Cephas, this is uh, Peter, the apostle Peter, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here we have Peter, right, as one of the leaders of the early church who's eating with this group of non-Jews known as Gentiles. He's eating with this group of non-Jews, and then some Jewish men come in, right, and join this meal, and he decides, well, now he can only eat with other Jews. So Peter grabs his food, right, because other Jews are keeping kosher. He grabs his food, he moves, and sits now with this group of Jews. So he goes from one group to this other group. Well, this catches the attention of the Apostle Paul here, who's uh, another leader in the early church. And so he decides to confront Peter. And if you know a little bit about Paul's life, you'll remember that he was very strict uh, through most of his life at this point about following Jewish law, right? He had, he had studied to become a Pharisee, a religious leader, and uh, the Pharisees were very, very strict about keeping to the Levitical law. And they did this in order to be able to claim their righteousness, right? They followed all this list of rules so that they could tell people that they are righteous. So why then was Paul so passionate about addressing this very same attitude that he's seeing in Peter? We'll get to that in just a little bit. But first, I want to actually focus on Peter and his life and, and what's going on here. And if I'm honest, I actually see a lot of myself in the actions of Peter in this moment. And I think most of you will probably be able to relate on some level here. So let's break down um, just the order of, of Peter's actions, right? The sequence that he's following. The first thing that Peter does, it says, is he separated himself, right? This is verse 12. He says, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And so Peter was outright discriminating, right, against this group of Gentiles. And it's important to note that in Jewish culture, we've talked a little bit about this before, but in Jewish culture, who you shared a meal with determined who you were publicly declaring welcomed in the kingdom of God. So by withdrawing and separating himself, Peter was not only reverting back to his old ways, his old life before Christ, but he was actually implying that the ones who weren't abstaining from certain foods weren't welcomed into heaven. Peter had drawn this line in the sand that, that divided this group of believers, declaring that one group was righteous and one group was not. So why would he do this after walking alongside Christ for his entire ministry? Why, why did Peter act so contradictory to this, this message of compassion and grace and unity that he had been preaching for years at this point? Well, it says that he feared the circumcision party. His fear of man had superseded his fear of God, and so he ran right back to his old ways. He lost sight of the entire purpose on earth, right? And so he went back to his old ways. Let me ask you this, has there ever been a time in your life where your desire to be accepted by others has trumped your desire to live out the one true gospel? Has your desire to please others ever deterred you from your faith? We make a lot of jokes about peer pressure you know, in high school or middle school or whatever, but 
sometimes we forget the very real struggle that it is for us, even as adults, and how very real that pressure still is on our lives. And so this is the place that Peter's at. So he creates this division, he draws this line, and he, and he takes on this, um, this kind of us versus them mentality, right? Almost like a, like a sports rivalry with eternal consequences in his mind, right? Like this is team heaven because they're doing all the right things. That's team hell because they're not following the law. And obviously that's an oversimplification of what's going on here, but that's basically where he's at. And unfortunately, we still see this type of division all the time in the church, don't we? We see warring de- denominations. We see arguments over politics. We see division, even us within the church as believers versus them, the outsiders, those who are not believers. What happened to loving your neighbor? Have we completely forgotten that we've been called to unity under the gospel? And an important point here is that Peter's physical separation from this group, his actions, they actually were the result of a mental separation that had to have taken place beforehand, right, in his head. He had to categorize this, this group of Gentiles as the wrong team, if you will, in his head. That's the way they were living was wrong, and so now, because he had divided this group of believers in his head first, then the physical action follows that. And see, what we often do is we slap this label on a group of people who, who live or think differently than us, right? And we no longer really think of them as people. We think of them by that label rather than as individual lives who are in need of the love and the grace of Jesus the same way that we are. We make them faceless enemies stripped of their humanity in our own hearts, right? Let me remind you this morning that People are not our enemies, they are our mission. Jesus said in Matthew 28, this is our life's mission statement here. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus has commanded us to go and reach people, not divide ourselves, right? Not separate ourselves. And I'd actually like to take a moment this morning to, to address where I've seen this, this very attitude of us versus them, especially since moving here a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago now. And honestly, I've, I've even heard this within these walls. So let's, let's pause for a second. Let's all take a deep breath. Let it out. Okay, can we stop with the slander against people moving here from out of state? Let's stop slapping this label of outsiders on people who are moving here, right? Let's stop viewing them as a threat. Let's start viewing them as individuals who bear the image of the Most High God because that is the truth. If we can't do that, How are we any different from Peter here? Really, if we're separating ourselves and calling them outsiders, they're out-of-staters, whatever label you want to throw on it, how are we any different? 
Nowhere in scripture does it call for the exclusion of people. Nowhere. We're called to pursue people, right? Whatever imaginary lines are drawn between this rock and that. Go and make disciples of all nations. People are more important than borders. And all of humanity has been created in the image of God. And believe it or not, that includes people from California, right? (laughs) So let's just shift our perspective a bit. Let's be salt and light to the people who are moving here, right? Let's be compassionate, loving, and inviting toward outsiders the way that Christ has been with us when we were outsiders. I know this may not be a popular message, but I think it's a necessary one, and we need this reminder. We need it. And who knows? Who, who knows what their life is? Who knows why they're moving here, right? Maybe the Lord called them here from a place like, I don't know, Hawaii, and, you know, to minister to the, the community of East Helena. We don't know their story, but we'll never know their story if we separate ourselves, right? How can we be salt and light if we're not even in their lives? And if we can learn anything from Peter in this moment, it's that separating ourselves is actually counterintuitive to the gospel. It's opposed to the gospel. And Paul saw this, right? Paul sees this in Peter in this moment, and, and he sees the impact that it was having. And that's what leads us to our next point. And it's this, that Peter led others astray in his actions. Sort of this mob mentality takes place, right? Right? In verse 13, it says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Sometimes we forget that others are watching our conduct, don't we? Please remember that your life has a direct impact on those around you. Whether you realize it or not, it's true. And if you're a proclaiming follower of Jesus, then people are looking at your life as a model of who Jesus is. They are looking at your life as the model for all Christians. It says here that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, if you don't know who Barnabas is, he was the mentor to Paul. Right? He's the one who, uh, at the time of Paul's conversion, kind of took Paul under his wing and discipled him. He and Paul were actually the, the ones who planted the church in this city, this city of Antioch that this is all taking place in. And so when Paul says that even Barnabas was led astray, that, that should be shocking to us. We should take this seriously, right? Even a seasoned believer who knew and preached the truth was tempted back into his old life in this moment, just following in the footsteps of Peter. The reality is that none of us are exempt from completely forgetting the grace that we've received. We, we have to daily remind ourselves. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to remember this. I've been involved in, in youth ministry going on seven years now. And uh, do you know the number one reason why so many young people are walking away from the church? It's because they don't see any sort of correlation between what we preach and how we live. That's pretty convicting, Right? They think, well, if they don't really believe what they're saying, why should I believe what they're saying? And so they walk away. 
let me remind you that you're not merely a servant of Jesus. You're an, you're an ambassador for him. That our role here on earth is to be salt and light, that we go out into the world, that we represent Christ. For years, we've, we've been unintentionally preaching this, uh, this partial gospel that, you know, Jesus' work on the cross gets us this free pass into heaven, and that's it. That's where it ends, right? I like to call this the, the fire insurance gospel, right? Well, got my get out of hell free card. That's it. I'm done, right? But if that's it, then the implication is we take that knowledge, that truth, and we sit on it, right? We don't need to do anything more because we've already done everything that we need to do. We've done everything we're called to do. But what impact does that message have on our lives, our daily lives? More importantly, what, do, what, what impact does that message have on the lives of those around us? I remember watching a, a video series a um, couple years back on discipleship, and there was this pastor by the name of David Platt who was on it, and he said something that will stick with me for the rest of my life. He said, you know, as, as Christians, we often think of the gospel as this diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. But the reality is that the gospel is the very pool that we're diving into. The way that you pursue or do not pursue a life with Jesus affects the people in your life, whether you realize it or not. If you do not have an accurate understanding of the gospel of grace, then you'll naturally be prone to separating yourself and in the process, leading others astray, just like Peter. That's exactly what Peter's done. He separated himself, creating division, even within the church, and he led others astray in that process. And as a result, this is what happens. This is our third point here. This is the third event in this passage. It says he was confronted Paul writes, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Praise God for the work that he had done in Peter, or in uh, uh, the apostle Paul at this point, right? Because Paul, of all people, probably led the most legalistic life of anyone in this in this. Uh, in this passage. But he also saw the destruction that that lifestyle brought, right? He saw the way it was already in that moment impacting the other believers. And so he confronted Peter. And I think it can be easy to read this passage as, uh, as Paul, you know, standing up and aggressively attacking and debating with Peter in front of this, you know, cheering crowd or whatever and and maybe that is even more appealing on some level to our flesh, but there's nothing in the text that suggests that Paul called Peter out in any manner apart from love and gentleness. Why? Well, because Paul cared about Peter, and he cared about the people around him, and he cared about the truth of the gospel. And so he felt a conviction to remind Peter of the reality that Jesus alone is what has made us righteous in the eyes of a holy God, not our works, not our sticking to the law. 
And he goes on to illustrate this in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Paul is reminding Peter that the grace of the cross is sufficient. There's no amount of keeping to the law that can remove, like we just saying, that, that crimson stain that sin is left in your heart, in your life. There's no way for you to earn your righteousness because that work has already been accomplished by another who stood in your place. And you watched him w- willingly take that on. I love this illustration that Paul uses of, uh, of rebuilding. He says, you know, if I just finished tearing down a house brick by brick because there was a structural issue, right? There was a bad foundation. Why would I rebuild it brick by brick the exact same way I just tore it down? It's going to have the same problems, right? Paul's perspective had changed. Once he, once he met Jesus on the road to Tarsus, he had a major shift in his outlook. He realized that his old ways needed to be done away with, and he needed to let those old ways die. He went from killing Christians to building the church. And this contrast in his life was so stark that the sole explanation is the intervention of God in his life and in his heart. Let me ask you this. <clears throat> if I stood up here and told you, hey, yesterday I was at Yellowstone and I got trampled by a herd of bison, and you looked at me and saw that I had no bruises, no broken bones, I'm not even limping, what would you think? Yeah, you'd be pretty skeptical, right? <laughs> Lies. Why? Well, because an experience like that would completely change me, right? Right? Basic logic would dictate that there would be at least some sort of evidence of this encounter. But how much more true should that be when we encounter the living God? The fruit in our life should be so apparent that people look at us and they say, like Paul, there's only one explanation. There's only one explanation. Your life should look radically different as a result of the truth of the gospel. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And in just a moment, we'll have a chance to uh, respond and, and worship through music. But first, I want to read together how Paul closes this section of his letter. He says this in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
Paul understood that his life was not his own anymore. When Jesus said, it is finished, on the cross, he used this term that means paid in full. If you're a believer in here, then your life has been purchased by the blood of Christ. The debt of your transgression has been paid in full and you're no longer living for yourself. You're called to a much higher purpose. If we all lived with this mindset of being crucified with Christ and it's now his life in us, how much different would the world look? It ought to. Right? Our lives should have a profound impact for the Lord on the world around us. And this is a significant portion of the gospel that we often overlook, even within the church. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit, God himself. And I promise you, we can change... If you can change a heart like mine, the way that he's impacted my life, I promise you, he can change anyone. I've been reflecting for the last week. Please excuse my crying. I've been reflecting on my life for the last week. And I wasn't planning on sharing this, but when I was 20 years old, I was so selfish. I was on drugs. I had no hope left in my life. And I didn't know what else to do. And so I turned to prayer. I said, well, religion works for some people, right? And so I prayed. I didn't even know what I was saying. I just said, God, give me a church. I don't know what to do anymore. I have no hope. I had gotten to the point where I was going to take my own life. Two days later, I received a phone call from a man I'd never met. And he said, hey, I heard you play drums. I was like, I do. He said, I'm a, our worship leader's on vacation. All of our drummers are out of town. Can you play at church this Sunday? There's no other explanation other than God heard my prayer. And I've seen over the last almost 10 years now, the way that he's just little by little radically transformed my life. I look back and I'm like, God, I'm not even the same person anymore. Look at what you've done in my heart. Look at how much you've changed me. All the glory goes to him. Because I know that's not me. I know my own heart. I know that I'm prone to separation. I know that I'm prone to leading others astray. But God was the one who confronted me. And he's placed people in my life consistently to do the same because they care about me. Genuinely. That's why we're here. That's why we celebrate every Sunday. That's why we come together. And that's why I'm so passionate about not letting this be routine, not forgetting why we're gathering the same in the first place. So what do we do then? What do we do with all of this? 
while we seek God first, we seek him above everything else. Second, we love our neighbor, no matter how different or difficult they are. And then when he moves, we get out of the way because his power is so much greater than ours. He's the only one who has the power to change hearts. And so we get out of the way. Would you all rise with me? Let's continue in worship together.